I'm Jessica Dorr, and you're listening to the offering for Autumn Equinox 2022. Something about the cooler weather has me overextending. Time has felt scarce, and my routine's tough to maintain. When time is tight, I get to thinking about cunning. My favorite definition of cunning is the one that says, when you experience an undeniable truth, you will beg, borrow, and steal. You will rearrange your whole life, forsake everything, just to serve what is real. When I think about cunning, I think of every trickster who is within and among us getting crafty with grief, because there's no time to do it. But since it's real, it gets tended somehow. And all the artists getting creative about impossible tasks that have to get done, or working toward shapeless, unnamed things in tucked away, stolen moments. I think grief itself is a trickster, if it's true that grief is a rearranger, and I think that it is. I have plenty of evidence to back this claim, but for now I'll simply say that when a thousand darknesses wash over Tuan McCarroll, he goes to sleep and wakes up someone else. And I don't know about you, but I'd be a lot more willing to dive headfirst into sorrow if I knew another life was waiting, just over that ridge of one solid night's sleep in total acceptance. All that grief can do. And I've been thinking a lot about routines and rituals, which I wrote about some last week, and about how repetition like a behavioral pattern or a story we tell over and over, can be a defense mechanism, a way to fly under the radar of the divine, or to evade what might arise spontaneously in a moment if we dare to go off script. Maybe two days after I made my last offering, I was revisiting Byung-Chul Han's disappearance of rituals for some language to include in a talk called Tarot as Ritual. Han makes this distinction between repetition and routine that I think is really interesting. Routine is more to do with what I spoke to last week, behavior that becomes automated to mitigate the element of risk. Routine regulates intensity, which is a useful thing about it when you've got enough intensity to begin with and need something to temper it. Routine can take the edge off. For Han, repetition is different in that it creates intensity. He writes, repetition discovers intensity in what provides no stimuli. The person who expects something new and exciting all the time, by contrast, overlooks what is already there. The other night I confessed to a friend that I regularly judge myself for how often I go back to the same books and stories and even quotes, because somewhere I've taken a narrative that if I don't have new language all the time, what I do won't have value. This is wrong, and I know that it's wrong. I know because I've been reading different versions of the same story, the Grail Legend, for two years which is really no time at all for this sort of thing. And I don't grow tired of it. In fact, it gets more and more interesting, more provocative and troubling the more time I spend. I'd argue that repetition itself is actually full of new things since reality is always changing. I think intensity itself has something to do with the tension between the expectation and what's actually there. And I say this in part because, as I've written about before, I've done the same yoga poses in the same order nearly every day for more than a decade, and because my body is different every day, there's an intensity to it, an attachment to how things could or should be. It can be quite emotional. I also look repetitively at the Grail legend, and each time something surprises me. Not something new per se, but a hole opens up that wasn't there the last time. Like right now, I'm reading Chrétien de Troyes' version, and have been stuck on this one scene for months. Percival is getting inducted into King Arthur's court, which is his ultimate dream. And then Kundry, the tusked sorceress, shows up to tell everyone how unworthy he is. Why? Because he went to the Grail Castle and didn't ask about the Grail, 
which was the one thing that would have healed the wounded king and restored the land. These are Kundry's exact words. Those who see their change but never grasp it, hoping for better, must suffer for their failure. What an unlucky fool. How wrong to sit there, silent, when just a simple question could have cured that rich and noble king of his suffering. And she goes on to lament that the king will never be healed now, all because of you. I've encountered this scene in various tellings and have spent a lot of time thinking about it, especially when my book came out or when I get a lot of new signups for my newsletter or when I get chosen for things or given responsibilities that I don't feel prepared for. Kundry comes to me then just like she did Percival, the shame bearer, always eager to take me down a notch. I've been stopped at this scene for weeks, some guardian at the threshold holding me up. I think about how driving across the country two years ago around this time, I heard Daniel Deerdorf say in a recording that death is a point of transaction, like paying a toll. Something has to be relinquished in order to advance on the path. I wonder what about my reading of this scene, or the story as a whole, needs to be relinquished. Because there is a unique confluence of ideas and emotions and visuals in this moment that were not here before, a question emerges that I hadn't considered. After weeks of silence, the threshold guardian finally asks me, what if Percival's not doing the thing that would have healed the wound is the wisdom? What if the popularly accepted lesson of this story, that everything will be well and healed and redeemed if you can just do the perfect, correct thing, is actually wrong, misleading, dangerous? Myths can be wrong too, right? Absolutely. What if everything that happens after Percival's not asking the question that would have healed the king's wound is just reflecting a wound-phobic and solution-obsessed society with no tolerance for sickness or death, that hates deformity and lacks imagination? I don't know the answers to these questions. They need a lot more feeding. What I do know is that Percival is a fool. I also know that fools are often wise and medicine bringers and arrive as glory cloaked in shame. That means they're misunderstood by the dominant culture. And whether I like it or not, that includes me. What if Percival is simply allowing the king's wound to exist without needing to fix or solve or make it go away, holds something sacred inside? These are huge questions. They are space-making questions and they are thickening questions. They recognize that this story exists, was told, written down, reread over hundreds of years, interpreted and is still being worked with to this day, inside of a landscape that favors particular states of being as proper while marking others as wrong or abnormal. What if on some level Percival understood that healing wounds is not the only way to relate to them? What if his not doing the thing that everyone said he should have done was wise in a backwards way? What if Kundry, whose appearance is described even by the narrator of the story in every manner of denigration and disrespect, shamed Percival because she herself had been the victim of so much shaming. These questions insist on the alternate. They take nothing for granted. They are daring, audacious, probably offensive, and definitely problematic, in that they trouble something that is so settled, it takes years sifting the landscape with a fine-tooth comb to even notice that it's there. These questions outdo themselves. They are much more than detectives gathering information. They stimulate feelings and new thoughts. When we ask them, we become tricksters, making worlds. We go where one must never go, 
and become infatuated with something we would have been repulsed by last week. But if there's a way to reinterpret something that would bring forth meanings that were more useful for our purposes, these questions intend to find it. No harm in just looking. We can always go back to the old way if we find them to be dead ends. Besides, to entertain or even adopt a new meaning doesn't negate the old ones. It adds texture and complexity and roughs up what we want to be smooth, which is probably a more precise reflection of reality than any neat narrative that avoids contradiction could ever be. And what better time than autumn equinox to turn an old tale on its head? At this time, every living thing is a chorus singing our change and release back to us, the sun a composer, scoring all our transitions. I think it's a perfect time for questions like these. So I'll leave you with that, and I'll see you next week. Happy fall to my Northern Hemisphere people. You're listening to the offering for Autumn Equinox 2022. I make these offerings weekly for those interested in contributing $5 a month or $50 a year as a paying subscriber. To sign up or upgrade your subscription, you can hit the subscribe button in the text of this post. Paying subscribers receive weekly offerings in both text and audio format, plus access to the archives beginning in July 2021. The weekly audio began in October 2021. This recording was engineered by Lee Clark, and the music is by Lee Clark. The intro is called Evaporate, featuring Kingsley Ibaniche, and the outro is from Ibaniche's new album, Udo, which is a gorgeous set of incantations about love and belonging and the trouble of loving. Please go have a listen wherever you stream music. I've dropped links in the post to more of Lee's music and also Kingsley's Udo, which is produced by Lee, so go check it out and support. Thanks so much for being here, and we'll see you next time. Sometimes